Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and this week, well, this week I'm in Hawaii. So we are revisiting one of my favorite episodes from last year with Hassan Minhaj. Hassan is coming off a very busy couple of weeks, serving as guest host at The Daily Show, where he was a correspondent for four years under both Jon Stewart and Trevor Noah, and then hosting the Independent Spirit Awards a couple of days later. But when we talked last fall, Hassan was just about to release his latest stand-up special for Netflix called The King's Jester. The hour traces another very eventful time in his life when he was hosting Patriot Act, also on Netflix, and managed to make enemies of dictators around the world. It's a fascinating story about the power of political comedy that he was generous enough to share with us in this conversation as well. We will be back with an all-new episode next week, but for now, please enjoy me with Hassan Minhaj. Yeah, this is a long time coming. I feel like we, we've talked a, a couple times over the years uh, for pieces on the Daily Beast, and this is your first time on the, on the Last Laugh podcast. So yeah, it's a big day. Big day for me and a big day for you. Uh, your special is coming out. I'm actually such a fan because there's very few sort of podcasts that are actually so solely dedicated to the art form of stand-up comedy. Like as a, as a genre, and it's purely just for like the analysis and appreciation of that. Sports has that, film has that, but like stand-up's one of those things where it always doesn't get that like. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't get the respect it deserves. <laughs> yeah, and I guess because it's like you know we're we're uh, we're definitely lower on the tier tier of uh, the low one of the lowest on the tiers of uh, entertainment. Well. As I said, this is a, a big day uh, for you. As people are hearing this, is the day that your special drops, your new special, King's Jester, on Netflix. Um, so yeah, how are how are you feeling? Because this has been in the works for for quite a while. Yeah, I've been I've been writing it for several years now, and um, was just continuing to iterate it and and flush it out and and really refine the themes. And um, you know, it's been five years since Homecoming King, and one of the things I was thinking about while I was talking about it with my director, Prashant um, Venkataramanajam, he was just telling me, for him as the director and for both of us as fans of comedy, I definitely look at specials and I listen to albums with the, with the same feeling of kind of going, hey, I, I can't wait to hear what this person has to say. And, I, and you certainly hope that um, there's a, they kind of have a new worldview or a new take on the world. and you just feel like there's a progression in the albums. I've always loved following bands or musicians that way as well. Yeah, like, totally. Oh, I can so track kind of, you know, what's happening um, with not only their sound, but you can even feel what, what what's happening in their life with the stakes. And so... Um, That's certainly true for this one. I mean, so much has happened in your life in these past five years, and a lot of it is in the special. 
Um, you know, I feel like your Homecoming King was sort of your big, your first big hour, and it was a lot about your childhood and and growing up and stuff like that. And so, how did you conceive of what you wanted this one to be to be about? So yeah, for me, it's funny when I think I look back on Homecoming King, I I really think of it as as this piece of work, not only in my career, but I think in in popular culture. I think the reason why it resonated with folks is it kind of served as a this introduction to the country and the world at large of what this idea of new brown America is and was like, it really was a story of a first generation kid in my life talking about a lot of the themes that affect uh, first generation kids that are the bridge between these two worlds, between their parents that arrived as immigrants with visas that had hope that had this desire to assimilate and this new generation that was trying to establish some level of, authentic agency over their own life and trying to resolve those two. Popping out of your mom is like real estate. It's all about location, location, location. <laughs> I popped out here. Like anybody brown, we popped out here. We made it. We're the rappers that made it. What's wild is I never even knew how the whole X-Men origin story went down. I, like, it's crazy because we know nothing about our parents and our parents know nothing about us. Like, you'd be like, Dad, what's your favorite color? Stanford. You're like, what? No. Like, like, no like, I want to know more about you. Why do you want to know about me? Get into Stanford. You're like, ah. Oh. And I think, I think it's just that, like, immigrants love secrets. Right? Like, they love them. They love bottling them up deep down inside of themselves and then just unleashing them on you 30 years later when it's no longer relevant. So you'd be sitting there like, what? Mom's a ninja, dad's a communist? Why are you telling me this right now? I feel like every conversation with my dad is like an M. Night Shyamalan movie where it's just 90 minutes of buildup to no payoff. And I'm like... So if that was really kind of like an introduction of myself to the world, this really, I think, for me, was just an interrogation of why do I believe what I believe? So if Hong King was, hey, this is who I am. This is what it means to be Desi, Muslim in America. This is what Lokya Kanga means. This is what Hindus are. This is what Muslims are. This is why my... Marriage was like this. It was all, it was a lot of kind of introduction to those things. To me, was more of an analysis of like the ontological belief of why I believe what I believe and why do I tell the jokes that I tell. And I really, you know, worked with TV to peel back those layers and dig deeper, dig deeper, deeper, dig deeper. And um, yeah, it took quite a few years. And, and as we continue to refine it and work on it in these small black box theaters and these small secret shows, I, he really helped me find these threads and, and, and kind of bring it home. Yeah. So you, you opened the special by revealing a, a secret of sorts about your, about yourself. Um, and I, I feel like I have to tell you, um, I have some DOs in my life who I'm close to. And oh, uh, so uh, I, f I feel like I could have warned you about the, uh, the backlash that was coming your way after, uh, after what happened. Um, maybe for anyone who doesn't know, can you explain uh, what, what happened uh, on on Jimmy Fallon's show and why you decided to double down in this special, which I couldn't quite believe. Sure, sure. So uh, for those of you that aren't into niche physician jokes, specifically <laughs> in America, um, that aren't obsessed with um, <laughs> medical school hierarchy, um, DOs are doctors of osteopathic medicine. Um, when a lot of young, ambitious pre-med students uh, uh, pursue medicine, perhaps for the financial security or to help others, I think it's more of the former than the latter, but that's just me based on the number of physicians that I know. 
Um, sometimes we try to get into what's called an American medical school, which is, uh, you know, you get an MD. Uh, and in the event that you can't, uh, they have a thing called uh, DO school, which is similar to an MD. They are, I just want to let, let people know they're both good doctors. I've been in fact, and in fact, I actually don't even care. If you're wearing scrubs, I'll let you operate on them. That's how bad <laughs> it is in the United States. I, I, I could, I'll let a chiropractor do my physical. I, I, I <laughs> well, and you did trust trust uh, some of your you know most important uh, medical issues to to a DO as we learned. But Matt, actually, I, actually, what what I the, I'll actually tell you why I, I felt like doubling down. So on on um, on Jimmy Fallon, I did a. I did kind of like a throwaway joke about DOs and then the, the, the kind of the uh, diet Pepsi doctors, the, the same <laughs> kind of diet Pepsi to John Oliver's full calorie Pepsi. Kind of just like a throwaway joke. Um, took the piss out of myself, kind of took the piss out of them. He's not even an MD. Jimmy, he's a DO. I'm like, this guy. What is it? Can't even afford all the good letters. Oh, you don't know this. No, what's a DO? There's a war going on in the medical community, guys, between MDs and DOs. I don't know DO. No, no, no. M okay, so it's like, they're basically the same, but they're totally not. Like, an MD is Coca-Cola, and a DO is RC Cola. You understand? <laughs> it's like an off-brand doctor. Doctors of osteopathic medicine, I did not, I did not know. And I do get it now. They take the pain of having to go to medical school for over a decade very seriously. Yeah. And uh, there, was, there was quite a stir in the DO community about it. But what's interesting about the reason why I included it again in the special is when we talk about in the special, me figuring out my line, why do I tell the jokes that I tell? What's really interesting about the DO thing that I found to be interesting about comedy in particular is who is worthy of ridicule? And the philosophical question I'm trying to raise is, hey, if you own your own private practice and drive two Teslas, are you worthy of <laughs> Yeah, you don't feel like you're punching down to Dio's. Sure. And, and, and then if, if, if I really, when you really want to actually hit the thing on, on if you really want to get in there, is I, I kind of, even on tour, I'd go, hey, Dio's, who would you rather have me make fun of? NPs? <laughs> nurses? or God forbid, chiropractors. And all of a sudden, it would turn into full-on medical class warfare. <laughs> Practitioners, chiropractors, yeah. nurses, be like, yes! I mean, it was les miserables. It was this full-on <laughs> of just like, for years, we have been breaking our backs, serving you, you know? And all of a sudden, it, it quickly turned into what, 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 I, what I think is actually quite uh, an interesting like, point which is, hey, even if you look at the small vertical that you're in, there's a hierarchy within that. You don't acknowledge that. You too are no different than the thin-skinned dictators that I make fun of in this special as well. You know, yeah, it makes yeah, it makes sense. Choosing, choosing something as innocuous as you know, mm -hmm. or that you thought was innocuous for medical degree, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, let's let's get into sort of that that piece of it, the real the real punching up that you've done. Um, you know, we haven't talked uh, since your Netflix show ended, um, Patriot Act. So I want to talk a little bit about that, which you get into in the special as well. Um, you know, this was Patriot Act was part of this wave of uh, Daily Show alums getting their own shows. I, I was curious when that was all happening. Were you ever um, considered or or up for replacing John Stewart on the on the Daily Show? 
I don't think I was on the list. Yeah, I don't think I was on the list. Yeah. Surprising. I know. It was something that um, I, I I would have always wanted to. And it's one of those things where you're like, oh, man, if only. You hear about these stories about Jay Leno and Late Night Wars. Being on these <laughs> lists. And uh, no, I, I don't think I was I was on the list. Uh, but I think as as corny as it sounds, destiny has a way of working itself out. And I think I sincere in my efforts and what I was trying to do and and things lined up I think the way they were supposed to line up at least that's yeah I mean you went off and did this this other show you got your own show on Netflix and it was really different in a lot of ways from what you probably would have been doing if you had you know stayed at the Daily Show um, it does feel like it was the rare streaming quote-unquote late night show that really did influence culture and connect with people in a way that I think has been a struggle for a lot of these shows um, did you feel that at the time? Did you feel like it was, um, you know, connecting, having an impact um, when you were making it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, I'll, I'll be candid with you, Matt. There were so many pitches and ideas that I had that could never fit in a seven and a half minute act two desk chat right. on The Daily Show, or that could be fit into a four and a half or five minute field piece on The Daily Show. And I felt like um, the... The daily shows, what they were servicing and what they are servicing is distilling the, the day's domestic and at times world events into a pretty concise, either seven and a half to 15 minute kind of recap. And I think, I think the utility of that, the comedic utility of that is, is pretty great. Um, but to me, when I got the opportunity to be at Netflix, I was like, wow, I mean, we have the opportunity to speak to... 150 plus countries and there is this huge white space of all these topics that have informed my world and my worldview and growing up in the states a lot of times i feel like our news media has a particular myopic worldview um that's, it's you know relatively ethnocentric it's, it's u.s first and my vantage point i thought was a little bit interesting where i i'm, I'm an american citizen for sure for sure but then I'm also, you know, reading about Indian elections, cricket corruption, FIFA, the World Cup in Qatar, like Middle Eastern politics, all of these sort of things that are, you know, the, the war on terror, the United States' complicit nature in multiple different wars. So my vantage point of uh, what it means to have an American political satirical identity was a little bit different. And... I knew as soon as I got the opportunity, I was like, this is a space I could go into. Like immediately, there was all these topics. I'm like, I would love to dive into affirmative action, Saudi Arabia, uh, Duterte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro in Brazil, like things that my family members actually talk about on WhatsApp of like, we're, we're talking to each other and having a lot of really serious discourse about, I mean, political discourse on WhatsApp is nuts. And so- yeah. <laughs> That, that WhatsApp conversation to the mainstream, that to me was just a dream come true. Yeah, I mean, it feels like as we're talking, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, the protests going on in Iran is something that you would have covered that is not getting really any attention at all on in late in the late night TV space, at least. For sure. And I, I think, Matt, you, you understand this working in media and, and uh, you know, coming from The Daily Show and Patriot Act, we're this kind of comedy media adjacent thing but we dress up like members of the media we kind of we kind of cosplay as members of the media but so much of media is about framing and it's about 
you know, the meta narrative. And it's important that one of the things that I realized is perhaps the reason why it's not being discussed on late night right now is there's a lot of people in American news media that go, I don't know how to frame this. But to me, there is a connective tissue to, again, in, in, in my uh, American upbringing, I'm able to connect those two ideas. Like, no, best believe there is a version of the American Taliban that isn't, that has an unflinching, unwavering, um, almost ancient theocratic perspective on law and jurisprudence and execution of law. And I see the similarity between these two, even though they're thousands and thousands of miles away. So the draconian laws that are being levied against women to not have agency over their bodies under the guise of religious law is quite similar to that as well. Yeah. And I Um, think also, yeah, the lack of of women in, in late night TV right now is also a problem for that same reason that I think, you know, I would think someone like Samantha B would be maybe making that uh, connection if her show was still around. Sure, sure, sure. Did you, I mean, obviously you had a, you had a, a nice run on Patriot Act, but it was, I'm sure not as long as you would have Dude, liked. I'm, surpri- I'm surprised we lasted as long as we did. Yeah. yeah uh, I think uh, you did about 40 episodes or something like that. Um, do you, do you feel like the, I don't know if Netflix gave you a reason why the show was canceled. I, I don't know. Is, do you feel like there was a connection to the everything that went down with the Saudi Arabia episode? Because that was your first episode, which is yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a long gap in between. So, I mean, that, you know, it's, it's so funny, man. The fans, it's, it's really beautiful. They have these wild conspiracy theories where they're like, it was the Saudi. No, it was like, you know, it was, uh, it, it was him calling them out for not paying corporate taxes or <laughs> They have this no, whole like, it was just basic uh commerce and yeah, no, uh, really what it was. Ted, I, I gotta give Ted Bella and Brandon Reed at Netflix a lot of credit. They were super transparent and and really nice and really kind and sincere in, in, in places where a lot of networks aren't or don't have to be. Um it's very transactional. They weren't. They were super transparent and and proud of the show. And you know, candidly, they were like, look, most shows don't go beyond six seasons. So even though episodes were getting, you know, several million views per week and the YouTube numbers were doing great, and both on platform and on YouTube, you, you did notice we were, you know, kind of plateauing around the like the two, three, sometimes four, two, three million views per episode, either on digital or on, or on platform. And one of the things that they're always looking for is growth. Hey, where, how can we add? people to the mix they're so, not maybe in the business of that long term like we're going to have this show on for 20 years sure but what was thing. cool what was cool is one thing that they did say is when the show ended immediately they were like do you have any other ideas <laughs> like like they're hey, still in the they were still in the hassan business yeah totally so you know and i remember telling um telling them i go it takes a long time to come up with an idea i'm, I'm not as quick as algorithm i i don't know if i can 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 feed the the algorithm as quickly as but they got your they got your special so there's that yeah yeah so i think i think it all um it all ended well and i give them credit you know for letting me put full episodes up on youtube as well that was pretty unprecedented and ted and i had a really long conversation and he was like okay you know both ted and bella were like this is important to you we're gonna do it and so i'm always appreciative of of those relationships where someone has leverage and the right to say no, they actually in good faith hear what you have to say. And they're like, okay, let's do it. Um, and I, I it, it allowed the show to go to places in the world 
where sometimes people can't afford Netflix. You know, YouTube is this very egalitarian thing that no matter where I travel in the world, India, Bangladesh, you know, you go to parts of Europe, like everybody is on a mobile device watching YouTube. And so I thought that was really cool for them to allow um, me to share the show that way. Coming up, Hassan reveals the moment he realized he may have taken his comedic pursuit of dictators too far, and how close he came to walking away from comedy altogether. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued, what was in Al Capone's vault, or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay because you can learn it all on the new podcast WikiHole from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with other Daily Show alums like Larry Wilmore, Samantha Bee, Jordan Klepper, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Hassan Minhaj. Let's talk a little bit about the the Saudi Arabia stuff because it is such a big part of the special. You know, as I said, I, I couldn't believe that it, looking back that it was, you know, your first episode out of the gate, basically, or one of the first two. And you also reveal in the special for the first time that you actually were trying to interview the crown prince. I couldn't figure out, was that for Patriot Act? That was going to be part of that episode? Or or how did you think about that? Yeah, we were trying to do it. And I, I was trying to shoot a pr- uh, interview with the crown prince while he was doing what was called the charm offensive. He was doing kind of media campaign where he met with like The Rock and he met with Michael Bloomberg at Starbucks and met, met with, you know, Ari Emanuel and WME. And it was this whole thing, like, I'm going to go um, and, and I'm going to do this big kind of the Crown Prince has arrived in America tour. And I thought this could be the moment where, hey, like, you can meet with Bloomberg and Starbucks. Hey, like, I'll, I'll meet you at Coffee Bean. Like, let's let, let me shoot my shot. And 
um, I felt like, again, there's a perspective that I would have that perhaps Dwayne The Rock Johnson does not have that would make that interview interesting. So to speak. how do you think you would have approached it? I mean, what would you have been, what would have been your goals in, in talking with him? I know it almost happened, but then, but then didn't. Sure. I, I, I mean, I think there's certainly the, the, there is a dual energy that Muslims around the world feel when it comes to their relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, on, on one hand, they are the custodians of one of the holiest sites in our faith. Mecca and Medina are in Saudi Arabia, and it is, you know, the duty of every practicing Muslim to try to make their pilgrimage there. It's a, it's a very sacred place in our hearts um, and in our faith. And at the same time, there is this quite contentious relationship with the Gulf states vis-a-vis the proxy wars they've had with Yemen and some of the political alliances they've had. Um, and so my identity, both as a Muslim and as American, is very complicated with the Saudis. And America's relationship is very complicated with the Saudis, which, you know, America will always say we, we will fight and support the quote-unquote democracy around the world. And then every couple of years, every <laughs> president will go sword dancing with the Saudis and go full Prince Ali Ababa to lower the gas prices and sell some arms. So those would be my comedic take that I would have brought. Just a few months ago, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, AKA MBS, was hailed as the reformer the Arab world needed. But the revelations about Khashoggi's killing have shattered that image. And it blows my mind that it took the killing of a Washington Post journalist for everyone to go, oh, I guess he's really not a reformer. Meanwhile, every Muslim person you know was like, yeah, no shit. He's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. How do you feel about the episode, that episode now, um, you know, a few years later? Um, it's the one, obviously, that then got taken down uh, from Netflix in Saudi Arabia, and there's a lot of sort of controversy and discussion around that. Is there anything you would do differently, or do you feel like you, you stand by everything in that episode, or how do you think about it? I'm super proud of what we said. And one of the things I touched in the special, though, is I'm not proud of the means by which I went about it. And some of the, like, kind of the haughtiness and the ego that I had to just bum rush an embassy and put and put myself and loved ones in danger. And the the kind of the drunken high and stupor that I had to try to get that great joke, that shit isn't funny, man. You could get a lot of people hurt. You know, funny, funny enough, I'll tell you a story. Even after it happened and the episode got taken down and, you know, my Hajj visa was denied, I had this idea where in Islam, if you can't make your pilgrimage, somebody can make it on your behalf. But there's the, so God has created this little loophole. <laughs> so I said, how can we make a sketch out of this? I, th- I feel like this would be kind of the ultimate long con. So I called Nathan Fielder and I go, Nick, <laughs> have you ever considered Islam? I know you love reporting from the field. What if you converted <laughs> to Islam? You know, I got an imam down here. You converted. You accepted the faith. Both, you know, you know, Muslims and Jews. We are, we are cousins. We both come from Abraham. We are pretty linked. In in law, we can marry one another. Like let's let's just do this. You go down. You make your pilgrimage on my behalf. We come back, and you know, maybe we go on CBS Sunday morning. We let the Saudis know, hey, like <laughs> no autocratic power can inhibit my connection to God. And I remember Nate said something that was so chilling now that I think about it. He goes, could this get me hurt? 
and he meant and Matt, he meant it sincerely. Like physically hurt or uh Yeah. Would this would this get me hurt? Would they kill me? And he meant it sincere. He's like, dude, I don't know. I'm he goes, I think the idea is brilliant. I think it's so funny. Yeah. He's a pretty daring guy in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, but 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 this is this isn't I'm gonna create a, a restaurant called Dumb Starbucks. This is I'm gonna fly to Saudi Arabia and, do, and pull this off with cameras. Like there is a delta of danger here that a lot of Americans don't know. Safety is assumed in the States. Yeah. You found you found Nathan Fielder's line. Yeah, yeah. But but I also was like, now that I think back on it, the fact that I was willing to like put that on paper in a pitch sheet, call him, try to get a crew. Man, I'm so glad we didn't go through with it. But it's also I'm kind of ashamed at myself that to pursue comedy and to pursue a bit. I'd put another, I'd be willing to put myself and another person's life in danger. That's not cool, man. And I think that's something that I explore in, in uh, the show as well. I mean, that, that's really the heart of the, the special in a lot of ways is the fallout from your pursuit of, of dictators and how it, how it affected your own personal life. I mean, the, the irony of the whole thing is that this episode that got, you know, taken down in, in Saudi Arabia brought you more fame, more attention, more social media clout than anything else that you've ever done. And, and Matt, real talk, man, the, the thing, the ugly thing that I wrote down, I remember I was while we were just flushing out the story and I just wrote this on like a sheet of paper is I go, I did the right thing for the wrong reasons. And Time 100 and Blue Check Twitter doesn't know that, but Bina knows that and I know that. And one of the things in my belief system is checking your intention. Intention is like really big in Islam. And I'm like, yeah, my intention wasn't in the right place. I had spent all these years at The Daily Show. You know when something is going to connect. I had enough experience as a comic to be like, I know what this is going to do. And that's fine. You, sh- you can do that. But you also need to be, for me, I want to be like really pure in that intention. And like, hey, man, I would do this whether or not there are cameras here or not. And that's why I included that line in the special that Bina did say to me, she goes, I love how you only care about these issues when there's a camera on you. <laughs> and I was like, I know, right? And, you know, I'm saying it in that like Smeagol voice of like, I know. And yeah. <laughs> it's a very ugly thing. Like, it's not a thing I'm proud of. But um, yeah, it was a theme that I wanted to explore. And it started with that question. Can you do the right thing for the wrong reasons? Don't judge me, Brooklyn. <laughs> You're just like me. Yeah, I've been watching you all night. You're fucking tweaking without your phones. <laughs> the phones. I'm talking to you right now. He can't even record this moment. Did it even happen? <laughs> you have to remember it in your mind like a fucking loser? <laughs> What's the most amount of likes you've ever gotten on a photo? 86? <laughs> 86. <laughs> if I only got 86 likes on a photo, I would kill myself. Do you feel like you have gotten to that point where you can separate yourself from the, you know, the reward system of social media and, and all of that? The test of it for me is I had this line that we removed from the special, but is 
I'm close the, I'm trying to close the gap between who I am on Instagram and who I am on iMessage. <laughs> and best believe there's there's Twitter Matt Wilstein and then there's iMessage Matt Wilstein. There's Twitter Amanda Gorman and there's iMessage Amanda Gorman. <laughs> there's Twitter Malala and there's iMessage slash WhatsApp Malala. And those are two different people. You're lying to me if if you if, if you don't admit that because I know that's true with me. And if I'm going to be honest and pursue this thing called being an artist and devote my life to it, I got to give you iMessage me. And that's the first thing. So, and what I mean by iMessage is there's a level of assumed until the bubble, the cloud bursts. There's a level of assumed privacy. There's a level of, hey, this is kind of who I really am. Can I just tell you this for real, for real? iMessage means for real, for real. Like, I'm going to tell you this for real, for real. Um, what did you really think of, you know? Olivia Wilde's movie, like for real. <laughs> That's the I message thing, right? That to me is true honesty. That is who you are. And that's what I'm pursuing. The second part of it is what Bina said is if you really believe this, you would do it whether or not people can see or not. And there's the ancient saying that that is why you give with one hand so the other hand doesn't know. That's, that's like, hey, you don't do good things to signal them. You do them because you truly are that. The third is, and this isn't talked about enough, there's so much, I think, social signaling and shaming of who a good person and bad person is. But to me, man, the only people that get to, to really determine that are Bina, Najmi Minhaj, Seema Minhaj, Aisha Minhaj, my two kids. Those are the people that know. And so I also now, as a comedian, have to check that against them because that's how I determine whether or not I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons. Yeah, I mean, in the spirit of of you know being honest about this public and private stuff, I mean, one thing that I'm sure you're aware of around Patriot Act is there were some staffers who you know spoke out about a toxic work environment, and um, you know, it was a lot of women of color. Um, and I do want to give you the the space to respond to that because I, I haven't heard you you know talk about that anywhere, um, and it kind of is it falls in line with this with this conversation that we're having. Totally. Um... So a couple of the staffers had a um, did not have a good experience with a couple of their coworkers in their department. It was specifically in regards to the tone, posture, and demeanor that those folks in their department had. Um, and if you remember, during that period of time, several newsrooms were having these conversations. Yeah, it was a big uh, moment of of reckoning. Totally. Totally, whether from the New York Times to the Washington Post to BuzzFeed. And there were people that felt, hey, I'm not being heard. My pitches aren't being heard. Why are these ideas being heard over mine? And one of the things that I really learned as a leader, I had to step back and go, oh man, like I really wish people in those teams would have gotten along. And the thing I have to own as a leader is whether or not you're in those rooms, you have to set a, a, a precedent or an agenda to go, hey, the way I'm carrying myself, everybody's got to carry themselves that way too. You know, and that's the thing I've reflected on too, as, as I've gotten into other projects and now been on other sets is going, how can I ensure that everybody feels heard um, even when I'm not there? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um going back to you know the what we were talking about with um with the the special and and sort of doing the the right thing for the wrong reasons that culminated and you mentioned the time 100 in this 
Um, okay. Very intense moment that you also include in the special where you call out uh, Jared Kushner to his face, basically. There are people on the front lines that cannot be here, uh, like Lujan Al-Hotal, who is a Saudi activist who helped fight to lift the women's driving ban. And she is currently in prison. She cannot be with us here tonight. She has been tortured. And a lot of times as comedians, we get a lot of credit. People come up to us and they go, thank you so much for pointing a light on that issue. But that's all we're doing, we're pointing. And I just wanna say thank you to Lujan for being the light. Um, this, is a very, this is a very powerful room. And you know, I know there's a lot of very powerful people here and it'd be crazy if, I don't know, if there was just like a, I don't know, like if there was like a high ranking official in the White House that could WhatsApp MBS and, and say, hey, maybe, you could help that person get out of prison because they don't deserve it. But that'd be crazy. That'd be, I mean, that person would have to be in the room, but it's just a good comedy premise. It was crazy, man, because that scene is really the, the, like the, it was the, it's the perfect push and pull of comedian me, which is obsessed with, oh man, this is the bit. This is so funny. And you know this, Matt, a great joke reveals something new that you didn't know, or it makes you, uh, oh, like there's this misdirect in it of like, oh shit, I can't believe you connected the dots this way. So I was one of the few people in that room as he is like sitting in Lujane's symbolic chair. I'm like, oh my, the triangulation of this joke is incredible that people in the audience don't know that Crown Prince and Kushner are these WhatsApp text buddies. Yeah, it wasn't as much uh, of a known thing at that point. Yeah, it was, it, again, like, sure, Ian Bremmer and policy wants know, but like, you know, again, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, was like, he doesn't know. So it was one of those things where my eyes just kind of lit up of like, oh man, like, um, this is the moment. Like, this is the moment where I could say this joke. And I remember kind of Bina looking at me being like, don't do this. I, I, can see, I can see the raccoon on Adderall eyes. I can see your eyes lighting up. Don't do this. This is, please, like, can we just sit next to Taylor Swift and eat our lukewarm salmon? <laughs> just give a toast to the fans or whatever. And, 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 and just say, you know, I'm praying for world peace or whatever and just sit back down. And I remember... I was, I bombed. It was really bad. And I just heard one loud cackle in the back of the room. Someone was banging on their table and it was John Oliver. <laughs> well, that must have felt good. Yeah. So I was like, all right, all right. Well, Oliver thinks it's John funny. liked it. Yeah. Yeah. John liked it. But I, but I bombed in the room. It was, it was bad. You know, after the, the Time 100 thing and, and all of that kind of leads up to some pretty scary consequences for you and your family um, because of all this stuff that you're, we're talking about, um, and you talk about that in this very emotional way in the special. Was there a was there a breaking point for you on this stuff, where you really had to reexamine um, what you were doing? Yeah, I think when you know my my family received that package, and I don't know who sent it, um, and I was with my daughter. Um, that was just a sobering wake up call of yeah, yeah. It was know, a, it was an envelope with some powder in it, white yeah. powder in it that fortunately did not turn out to be anything scary. Yeah. yeah. So someone was, you know, trying to scare me or scare us. And uh, it worked. 
and it was really terrifying. And one of the things that, um, you know, if, if people ever came to the show, you'll notice there was a period of time for months where we didn't have uh, security in the front. And then for months, <laughs> all of a sudden, there was a couple security people there. That's what um, changed. Yeah. And that, that, people are always like, is Hustle like a rapper? Like, why, why are there security people? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, did he, yeah. Did he, yeah, did he put out a diss track about Bad Boy Records and it was like someone trying to retaliate or something? Um, but yeah, it, it, was a, it was a sobering kind of wake up call of going, you know what? There really is this thing where people talk about, oh, comedians need to push the envelope. But I, I remember in that moment, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, sometimes the envelope pushes back. Like, there are consequences for what you say and do. And if it hurts the people that count on you the most and someone who is um, so innocent, like my daughter, I, I really got to re reevaluate and examine what I'm doing here. Did you ever consider quitting comedy altogether or really changing the type of comedy that you do? Certainly the latter. It was how do I engage in this thing that requires that? Because comedy as an art form inherently needs to be cutting, irreverent. Um, it by design is poking at something. So then I had to ask like, okay, so who am I poking? What am I poking? And I think this not only applies to me, but it applies to, I think the art form itself is as comedians, we have to figure out what the Overton window of what is appropriate discourse when it comes to jokes. For me, rather than applying that to other people, the show's really about, hey, me applying it to myself. And the conclusion I came to is I'm willing to take the joke as far as I possibly can. Like, best believe I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swing up until the point that I believe in my heart, this is going to hurt loved ones and family members. Sorry, I opt out. Yeah. And before like, maybe you, you, would, you would have done it anyway, or you, would, you just... It would, it, been all... it would have been a dream, man. I would have gone full international Desi espionage Borat. Put me in the <laughs> Let me run into embassy. I'll do, I'll do whatever it takes. And, you know, it's crazy, man. I'm 37. And I, and I started doing comedy when I was 18. I got hired to join The Daily Show when I was 30. But I'm sure you've talked to so many comics between 18 and 30. That window was so dark. You are so desperate for health insurance and security in any capacity. The only thing that gives you wind in your sails is that next joke. And what it does whether it's show business or the need because of comedy, you're willing to do anything to, to get that big laugh. And um, there is more to my life than comedy, man. Like, it just is that way. Now that I'm, I'm here, I, I got an amazing wife and two beautiful kids. It's like, and I, again, luck, I'm lucky that both my parents are still alive too. Yeah, I, I can't sacrifice that for a great bit. Um, I want to make sure we get to talk, you know, some about the earlier part of your career and those those early years that you're talking about. Um, and I think we can get to it in this uh, final segment, the first laugh. Um, so I'm going to ask you about some firsts. Uh, going all the way back, uh, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up or one of the first that you remember? Probably one of the first things that made me laugh really hard was watching my dad watch Mr. Bean. <laughs> what it is about dads and Mr. Bean. He loved Mr. Bean. And I think it's this unique thing of like... You weren't laughing at Mr. Bean. You were laughing I at was laughing at Mr. Bean. I was laughing at my dad laughing at Mr. Bean. Um, who, by the way, you know, Ron Atkinson, legend. Ronnie Chang feels otherwise, but I, I, <laughs> that was probably one of the first times I laughed. And then, you know, uh, like, like a lot of kids from our generation, um, 
I personally wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons at home. I'd go to friends' houses to watch it. Um, and, uh, you know, seasons three, four, five of The Simpsons, man, I just remember being like, my God, like, this is so funny, so funny. I think people think that's the golden age, right? It's like somewhere like seasons three through seven. Or yeah, that sounds that sounds right. I always ask about the first time comedians knew they were funny. Um, you happened to tell that story in the special um, about uh, about the time that you almost got arrested. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So so maybe you can tell uh, a short a short version of that the first time that you knew you were funny. All right. So I grew up in Northern California, um, kind of uh, in the early two thousands. Um, and shortly after 9-11, you know, the United States had, had something called the Patriot Act, which allowed the FBI to kind of legally spy on, on the Muslim community. My dad happened to be the president of the mosque, uh, the Muslim Mosque Association in Sacramento, um, one of the oldest mosques in America, west of the Mississippi, by the way. So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, but we would, I, you know, I would grow up and I'd play with, you know, the kids that I went to Sunday school with, and FBI agents would just hang out at mosques all the time and so i tell this story where you know the first time i kind of you know realized oh i'm funny and i like the feeling of what of, of cracking jokes is is when i kind of made fun of one of the kind of fbi agents that that would hang out with us but i remember at the time when i was a kid yeah there was there was these guys you know a guy named javier but he would then <laughs> and he'd want to hang out with 16 year olds and i remember kind of, I, we would crack jokes and I'd be like, oh, I, so I guess, I, you know, Javier, I just wanted to let you know, um, you know, pedophilia is haram in Islam, right? So you, you probably shouldn't be hanging out. With her. And, and, and I remember like my friends would crack up and I loved that feeling. I love the feeling of on some level, you're making fun of the teacher or you're pointing out something that is absolutely absurd. And so as weird as that sounds, that is kind of one of the first times I felt you know, funny, and I felt like agency in my life in a weird way. I know you've talked uh, on stage some about your Daily Show audition. Um, what do you remember about the very first uh, correspondent segment or field piece that you got on the air? Um, what it was like to to make that, and and just whatever you remember from it. Oh man, so I think it was with um, it was with Jordan Klepper, and I, I believe the story was about there was. <laughs> It was about pigs and cages in New Jersey. Some like law about <laughs> allowing it's very random. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's like it was like Chris Christie, some piece of legislation uh around like crates that pigs were in and farms in New Jersey. Should they have the right to be able to turn should the cages be big enough so that pigs can turn around or not turn around? And so the Daily Show, they were they would do they would do these segments. I don't know if you remember, but like Wyatt Snack and Asif Manvi would be on two different. It's Team A or Team. So I was Team Turnaround. Um, and I think Klepper was Team One Direction. <laughs> so like they should be able to turn around in a, in a cage, and he was like, "Nah, like they should only be looking forward." <laughs> um, and it was this like super niche specific desk chat, um, and I remember being like so nervous. I didn't I didn't know if I would get laughs and this is where I give John a lot of credit. He was such a giving performer to the correspondence. He would do these things where he would sometimes like tap the desk or put his fist up to his mouth, like holding back laughter at like how silly and goofy we were being. And I love that he did that for me because he let the audience know, Hey, I think this guy is funny. Yeah, totally. 
And that was just so really kind of him to do because he could totally be like, all right, kid, go do your thing. Yeah. You could just, he could just play it straight. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And people were like, what is with this? Who is this kid who's obsessed with <laughs> pigs King turning Rice around? Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, and like pigs being able to turn around. Occasions. Yeah. In retrospect, that's probably something that John feels strongly about because he has totally, a I know. in New Jersey. What a, what a wild <laughs> yeah, kind of like thing um, Tracy cares so deeply about now. This is a this is a random one, but I was rewatching your White House Correspondents' Dinner speech, and uh, the guy who introduces you calls you Hassan Minaj, yes. and then you say you introduce yourself as Hassan Minaj, yeah, which is not yeah. the correct uh, pronunciation of your name, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And then I think like less than a year later, you were on Ellen, correcting her, yeah, yeah, for and and trying to teach her how to say your name, which she did not get. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and, and the decision to kind of, was there a time when you said, you know what, I'm not going to just uh, repeat what this mispronunciation anymore? Totally. So I remember when I first started um, stand-up. Um, it's 2004. I'm going to open mics and, and at Laughs Unlimited in old Sacramento. And I remember signing up to the open mic list. And, you know, what was interesting is there was like Davis High Hassan, there was UC Davis Hassan. Then the first time you go to a comedy club, I'm, I'm with adults. I'm with tax paying adults, you know? And I go, Hey, I'm just going to, let let's start fresh. So I like write my name down. Hey, it's Hussman. I remember the host was like, Hey man, you get, this isn't going to work. Yeah, this doesn't work for me. Yeah. This isn't going to work. He goes, you know, Jamie, have you ever thought about having a stage name? You know, Jamie Foxx, that's not his real name. Jamie Foxx is, you should think of, you should think of a, a name. And I remember I, I like went back to my car. Hassan, Hassan, Sean, maybe I go by Sean. And I remember uh, I had cat scratch, just like scratch notes. I get home, I go upstairs, and my sister sees one of like my pieces of paper where I'm writing. And she goes, are you going to change your name to Sean? <laughs> she was like, what are you doing? And I, and I, I had this long conversation with her. I was like, I know I just got to get through the door. And once I get through the door, then it'll all make sense. And if I, if I make it, then I can go back. And I remember after White House Correspondence Dinner, I'm, you know, People know me now. I'm able to sell out venues. I, I kind of have somewhat of name recognition. I'm taking my parents. I'm taking my parents down to go see Ellen. And my mom takes off work my, and my dad take off work. They're both state employees. My mom works at the VA and, and my dad uh, works at the Cal EPA in Sacramento. For them. And I remember, um, you know, she was like, Hassan, like, so good to see. And I just remember sitting there and I look out and I see my mom. I kind of see her just be like, who's Hassan? <laughs> And I'm, I'm sitting there on the couch in that moment. And it was this kind of like, it was like Neo in the matrix, like everything's slowing down at, all at once. And I was like, you made it. You're a stand-up comedian on Ellen, which is like one of the biggest daytime talk shows at the time. And, and are you still going to capitulate now? Like, are you, st- you made it. You don't, you don't have to go by Jamie Foxx anymore. Like you can go by what your real name is now. And so I kind of already had, a joke that I would do on stage about this. Just like, so let me get this straight. We can say Benedict Cumberbatch, but you cannot say Hussman. Like we can literally just say Leonardo DiCaprio. And yeah, it's totally fine. Timothy Chalamet with an accent, <laughs> yeah. group, the first two. Like we have no problem with that. And like, I have to change my name. So I did that whole thing, that joke in that moment. Um, yeah, because it just felt like, it just felt like the right thing to do at that time. And yeah, I, I think she was kind of fucking with you when she uh, 
also got it wrong again, but yeah. I couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like, okay, all right, something's happening here. Um, do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? That <laughs> makes me laugh now. Okay, so when I was doing NACA, those which are like college gigs, when you first start doing stand-up, I remember um, I was 10 minutes into my set, and it's called a nooner, which is like a show that you do at, at 12 o'clock in the afternoon while kids are getting lunch. and maybe 10 minutes into my set, um, someone in the audience, I was bombing so bad. They go, you can stop now. And I'm like, shut <laughs> up, man. What do you, shut up. What do you know? And then the person got up and was like, I'm the, I'm the booker. I'm the one who booked you. <laughs> you can stop now. And I remember it was like. What are you going to say to that? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I stopped. So I just like shuffled off stage and then we're in the parking lot and he's holding the envelope with like my $800 in it. And I really needed that money. And I, I had this fantasy in my head. of like, what if I just snatch this and get in the <laughs> Miata and just run to the airport? Luckily I did not um, I'm not brave enough to do that. And he eventually did send the money. I, <laughs> he wasn't well, going to pay you because you weren't funny so, enough. Yeah. I was so angry at the time. And, and I called Michelle Buteau and Dana Dude and I'm like, I should have, I should have snatched that envelope out of his hand. <laughs> they were like, dude, no, it's, it's okay. Like, it's fine. Um, do you have a memory about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, someone who you just really looked up to in the comedy world and what it was like to meet them for the first time? Yeah, I, I opened for Daniel Tosh at the, the San Jose Improv in, um, I think, 2009. And it was a huge deal. And T Tosh is so funny. It's it's interesting that yeah, we all I don't think he gets a lot of uh, respect. Yeah, he it, it's funny that like uh you know we, you hear the names of the greats, uh, the Bill Burr's, the Chris Rocks, the Chappelle's, the Geraldos, Teresa uh they're all fantastic but he's so whip smart and clever and quick and his ability to construct an hour was so amazing. I couldn't even I couldn't even like put words together. I was such a goober. Um so that was one of the first like kind of comedy um, heroes that I met. And finally, I like to give my guests a chance to shout out uh, other comedy comedians, anything that's making them laugh right now. So what's something that you've seen recently that really made you laugh? There's a comedian, Fahim Anwar. He is so funny. He drops these little mixtapes called Stuff That I'm Working On, like volume 5.1, 5.2. Like he is so funny. And what I love most about him is how goofy and silly he is he, he he's silly in such an amazing way there's another really funny comedian Mecky leaper he's really funny um i don't know if she needs a shout out but i think she is so talented i've told her this a million times taylor taylor tomlinson is just brilliant i think she's so freaking talented and uh, i want to give a shout out to yvonne orgy yvonne is like such a star she is like stunning and smart and can do sketch and can act and really funny and um nigerian culture is so similar to indian culture so when i watch her stuff it's like crack out. so yeah she has a new special coming i think October 1st. yeah i can't wait. i can't wait and it, it she mixes stand up with sketch which i think um is really great um yeah and moses storm moses storm he was on this podcast he's yeah. great uh and sorry uh yeah that's it yeah. <laughs>
Um, well, I have to tell you, I really, really enjoyed your new special. Um, it's so funny, so compelling, such a wild story that you have to tell. And um, you know, I think people are really going to enjoy it. So thank you so much for doing this. And it's been great talking with you again. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much. Hey, that was great, dude. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. That was really great. So thanks again to Hassan Minhaj. And if for some crazy reason you have not checked out his most recent special, The King's Jester, it is available to stream now on Netflix. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.